Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, the coronavirus vaccine rollout has been slower than hoped for when it comes to the people who can't work remotely. These workers have to make those tough decisions. Do I face financial devastation or do I come to work sick? We'll have more on that, plus a look at how Loveland's famous Valentine's Day postmark program is still operating despite the pandemic. Those stories and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. On Monday, President Joe Biden reversed a policy from his predecessor that essentially banned most transgender people in the military. Biden's executive order is already in effect. It allows, quote, all Americans who are qualified to serve in the military to do so. Army Captain Olivia Stelic, a physical therapist at Fort Carson who transitioned genders, reacted to the news with a smile. This just feels like the culmination of years worth of work to get here. It's pretty overwhelming. Stelic spoke with KUNC's Michael DeYuana about the policy as the news broke, and he's with us now. Hey, Michael. Hi, Henry. Now, you've actually known Captain Stelic for a while now. Your first interview with her was about two years ago. Yes, we sat down at her home in Colorado Springs before she began work at the Fort Carson Army Post that day. I learned from her just how confusing the military can be if you are a transgender soldier. Uh, Let me explain. Let me go back a few years to 2016. That's when Ash Carter, the defense secretary under former President Obama, lifted a ban on transgender troops. He said that the military should open its doors to the best talent and that transgender troops are part of that equation. That's what Olivia Stelic had wanted to hear for a long time. So she took a big step in her life and transitioned from male to female. Here's a little tape from my original story. It's me talking to her about her decision. I left work on a Friday and then I showed up on Monday with a different name and different pronouns and some makeup, right? That's, I mean, because I didn't have long hair at the time. And folks were remarkably gracious and lovely and kind, and it was wonderful. Right as you made your transition, Mm -hmm. Donald Trump tweets. (laughs) Uh, Yes, that happened. And what did you think that moment? What was going through your mind? So I didn't actually know it had happened. My first patient of the morning came in and said, I don't care what anybody says. I want you to be my physical therapist. You mentioned a tweet from former President Trump there. What did it say? Trump tweeted that, quote, the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the military. As you can imagine, Captain Stelic's heart sank. The policy on transgender troops under the Trump administration ended up being, of course, much more nuanced than that tweet. Yeah, indeed, affecting possibly 9,000 or so troops who identified at one point in a defense survey as transgender in different ways. For instance, because Olivia Stelic transitioned when it was allowed, there were essentially no changes for her and troops like her. 
but the pathway for those who had not transitioned was closed. There was a process to transition through waivers, but advocates for transgender folks in the military told me that it was convoluted and that they knew of only one case that was granted a Navy officer who got a waiver after filing a lawsuit. So how does the executive order implemented by President Biden this week affect those troops who wanted to transition but couldn't if they wanted to stay in the military? It opens the door to transition again for those who want it, as well as medical support. Captain Stellick, who's familiar with the process, told me that for months now she's been talking to a handful of troops asking her about transition, but she wasn't sure where to send them. Now I can tell soldiers, hey, I know how to help you and I know how to help your command help you. You can do this. There's a way. Here are the forms that are required. Here, here's who need to, needs to sign that. Here's how we get you through this process. And so to be clear, effective now, troops in the military who want to transition can do so, and people who already have transitioned will be allowed to enlist, assuming they're otherwise qualified. This news, Michael, was received well by groups advocating for transgender troops, but not everyone. Uh, For example, the conservative Heritage Foundation, which supported the Trump administration's policy, They argued that President Biden's reversal could hurt military readiness. They also say some transgender troops have a psychiatric condition called gender dysphoria and that it can increase the risk of suicide. Yeah, and some transgender advocates will say there is an increased risk of suicide among troops who feel that their identity is not accepted in the military. President Biden addressed studies into these issues, concluding that he sees, quote, substantial evidence that allowing transgender troops to serve has zero negative impact on the military. He also said that he thinks it's the right thing to do and in the national interest. I asked Captain Stellick what she thinks about all this, and she reminded me that in the military, people are ideally judged as individuals according to the work they do. I think that's the same with all of the command teams that I have run into here is like, as long as you can do your job, that's what matters to us. Now, on a broader scale, I know that you are still continuing to look into diversity in the military. That's an issue that you've made it a priority to cover. Yes, and there's an evolving pattern. Last year, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, I reported on promises by the U.S. Space Force and Air Force to make diversity from the top down a priority. The president's just sworn in secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, is the first black person in that role, and he has pledged to stand for, quote, equality for all who wear our nation's uniform. Statements like this, of course, require that we as reporters watch things like statistics over time to see if promises result in change. And I know you'll do that. KUNC's Michael DeUana covers the military. Thanks. You're welcome.
It's no surprise that Colorado's middle class is shrinking. That's been the trend here in the state and across the country for the last few decades. But a new report from the Bell Policy Center finds that Colorado could do a lot more to help people rise from poverty by rethinking the way that it directs public investment. Here to explain more is Jennifer Brown, who wrote about this for the Colorado Sun. Hello, Jen. Hi, Erin. In broad terms, what is meant by public investment? Well, in this case, they're they're really just talking about big state spending on things that we all use, you know, where our tax dollars go. So they looked at what they call the big six um, public expenditures. So that is healthcare, K through 12 education, higher ed, human services, the correction system, and the judicial system. And then what kind of data did the researchers with Bell Policy Institute look at? How did they reach their conclusions? They were able to get, you know, 20 years worth of state budgets in Colorado, looking at those big expenditure items that I mentioned, and, you know, kind of track the ups and downs and where Colorado put its money each year. And then at the same time, they dug deep into a lot of census data, and not just the straight up um, regular census data, but this survey that's done along with the census nationwide. And, you know, several people in Colorado take the survey and it's something where they do interviews basically. And they talk about their lives and demographics and, you know, who heads their household and all of this kind of data. And in a very complex statistical analysis, they, they took this real data and like put in scenarios for, you know, how families did when the state was investing money in different categories. And it seems like the big takeaway is how this money is spent really can lead to very different outcomes. You illustrate this with the example of spending $10 per person more in K-12 education. Yeah, um, and that was something that they um, picked out in the chart. Um, they kind of described it as a, a thought experiment, which I thought was interesting, like sort of a series of like, well, what if we put some money over here? Like what happens to statistically over here, right? And of course, there are many reasons why a family might be in poverty and unable to um, rise out of that. But statistically, they could tell like probability-wise, um, what would happen to Coloradans. And one thing that they found that, you know, I highlighted in my article because I thought it was really important that when they put money into K-12 education, the lines for both um, white Coloradans and communities of color went up in terms of those people were better able to own their own home, which is you know, something that we define like as a middle class lifestyle. So more investment in K through 12 education translated into upward mobility in, you know, economic status. And then if you look at more money being poured into corrections, it goes down for both white and communities of color. Another thing I found interesting is investing in the judicial system, which of course includes programs that keep you out of prison, like that's what they're intended for, like, um, you know, drug court or mental health programs that try to keep people on track and avoid prison time. When you invest in those, it is also beneficial 
economically for families. And investment in higher education has declined over the last 20 years. That's pretty well known. I don't want to assume, I mean, but does the report suggest that bumping that money up again could have positive impacts? Yeah, it does suggest that. And it is really interesting. The report really boiled it down to as Colorado's population has increased, like what are we spending in state funds on these big six programs um, when you take into account inflation and per person. And it's kind of startling, like on a per person level, we're spending less on K through 12 education and less on human services over the last 20 years. And it's even worse for higher education. We've just been spending less period on that. And I think what the report is saying is, you know, yes, it's advocating for more spending in general and saying that, you know, Colorado's state spending isn't keeping up with its population, but it really is more importantly saying um, if we're going to have new money to put in, where you put it is what matters. Um, So instead of just advocating for more government spending and big spending, it's saying let's really focus on the areas where it actually helps people rise out of poverty and into the middle class. What happens with this report? Um, I mean, do state lawmakers get it and actually read it? What do the researchers want to see happen with this information? Yeah, I mean, they're trying to share it widely, of course, and their hope is that policymakers, state lawmakers, the folks that make the state budget every year will dive into it a little bit and um, and see where these investments make more sense. And, you know, as one of the lead researchers put it to me, you know, it's just she's putting the information out there and she's saying to them, it depends which bucket you pour the money into. Um, It's not going to have the same impact if you put it in one category versus another. Jennifer Brown is a reporter with the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to this story at our website, KUNC.org. Jennifer, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me, Erin. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Coronavirus vaccines are finally underway, but distribution of the shots is slower than many had hoped, leaving those who have to go to work every day still at risk of getting sick. This is particularly true for Colorado's grocery store workers, hundreds of whom got COVID-19 in 2020. As KUNC's Adam Reyes reports, some are turning to their union for help as they worry about their health and financial security. The loss of her grandmother is too hard for Marisela Guzman to talk about. She passed earlier this month after a weeks-long battle with COVID. Guzman long feared bringing the virus home from her job at King Supers. Just a lot of people, a lot of ignorant people, I guess, not wanting to wear masks. Though Guzman wasn't working in the weeks before her grandmother got sick because of a work-related injury. Other members of her family are worried too, Guzman says, but they kept clocking in to their essential jobs. Because... I need money to not only support myself, but to help my family as well. This predicament is not unique to Guzman. Last August, a poll by the Colorado Health Foundation found 
that 19% of people surveyed said they were required to work despite health concerns. The rate is larger for those in lower income brackets. These workers on the grocery side, they're exposed daily. Kim Cordova is president of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union Local 7. And they have no control over their environment. State data show hundreds of those workers have gotten COVID-19. At least 270 employee cases were connected to nearly two dozen outbreaks at King Super's locations alone. Three died. These workers have to make those tough decisions. Do I face financial devastation or do I come to work sick? Some grocery chains, like King Super's, offer two weeks paid time off for those who test positive for the virus or show symptoms, but only if they're confirmed by a medical professional. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, these big grocers came out, put a, a billboards and went on TV calling them heroes. They also offered regular pay bonuses as hazard or hero pay in recognition of the difficulty of working during during a pandemic. At King Supers, it was an extra $2 an hour, but it didn't last past June. And then they took their hero pay away from them and then relaxed on safety interventions. King Super spokesperson Jessica Trowbridge disputes that last bit, saying processes are in place to ensure customers wear masks, store capacity is limited, and all areas are cleaned and sanitized often. But she declined to detail those processes, including whether mask-refusing customers are asked to leave. And in response to hero pay ending... We have invested more than $1.3 billion to reward, support, and safeguard our associates through things like appreciation pay, thank you pay, hero bonuses. We've additionally given in-store credits and fuel points. That adds up to nearly $700 per full-time worker in the months after hero pay ended. It's not nearly as much per month as the hero pay was, so union workers protested in December with messages like, all I want for Christmas is my hazard pay. We're, we're exercising our First Amendment, peacefully protesting that King Supers reinstate their hazard pay. But Bert Kutchall is worried about getting a different kind of pay from King Supers. From August till the present time, I've just been collecting the medical part of the benefit, not the cash part. The benefit he's referring to is a $300 a month disability pay. Cutshaw hasn't been to work since last March because of issues with his heart and lungs. The 69-year-old is taking the virus very seriously, even avoiding contact with his daughter when she drops off groceries. I've never looked elsewhere for another job. I've been here for all King Supers for my whole entire lifetime and, you know, a good company to work for, basically. At the insistence of his doctor, King Supers allowed Cutshaw to use sick and vacation days built up over his five decades with the company. But those paid days off ended last August. Now, the company isn't approving his disability pay request. They're not paying for the money part that I pay in every week through my medical coverage through uh, King Supers and the union. 29 other union grocery workers have been denied disability pay. With help from the union's legal team, Cutchall, and a handful of those workers who face similar risks from COVID due to age or pre-existing conditions are in legal arbitration over their denials. I'd love to get back to work. I, I do miss my customers. I do miss my fellow workers. And even though I've been with King Supers a long time, I enjoy my job. I really, really do. But Kutchall is scared to go back to work right now because he fears his efforts to avoid the virus will be impossible between those highly trafficked aisles. He's looking forward to getting vaccinated, but doesn't know when he can. The union says a decision in Kutchall's legal challenge is expected within the next month. King Supers declined to comment on it. Adam Reyes, KUNC.
Around this time of year, Loveland is known as the Sweetheart City in part because of its Valentine remailing program. People can get their cards stamped with a special verse and a postmark before it arrives in their loved one's mailbox. In past years, Valentine headquarters would be a busy scene, featuring dozens of volunteers sitting elbow to elbow in a conference room, stamping envelopes from around the country with Loveland's own special design and poem known as a cachet. This year, on its 75th anniversary, the program has had to make some changes due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We're joined now by KUNC's arts and culture reporter, Stacy Nick, to find out how the city is able to keep the remailing program operating while keeping its volunteers safe. Hey, Stacy. Hi. So for people who don't know about Loveland's Valentine remailing program, what is it? So in 1947, Loveland's postmaster, Elmer Ivers, helped come up with the idea of offering an official cancellation stamp for Valentine's Day cards. A local couple, Ted and Mabel Thompson, helped expand it beyond a simple postmark to include a new design and a special Valentine's-themed verse, which is known as the cachet, each year. The program actually got a huge boost in 1950 when band leader Guy Lombardo and his orchestra, the Royal Canadians, recorded the song... There's a lovely lake in Loveland. There's a lovely lake in Loveland where lovers love to go. At its height, the program remailed more than 300,000 cards. Obviously, you know, nowadays not as much letter writing is happening, so that slowed down the program a little bit, although it still typically receives more than 100,000 Valentines each year. And each one is hand-stamped by one of the program's dedicated volunteers. Now, I've been in that room before. Um, All of those volunteers stamping away, it's kind of loud. And really, it's kind of amazing to see. Right? (laughs) But this year, obviously, you know, hanging out in that conference room with dozens of other, other people for hours at a time just really wasn't possible, especially as most of those volunteers are senior citizens and highly at risk for COVID. So what happened to the program this year? They did not decide to cancel it, I know. They did seriously consider not doing the program this year. But Loveland Chamber of Commerce President Minnie McLuhan, who coordinates the program, told me there was concern that even if they canceled it, because it's been going on for so long, they were going to get a lot of Valentines from around the world, whether they went ahead with the program or not. But she said what really cemented the decision to move forward was the volunteers, many of whom have been doing this for decades. This is actually a very coveted role in Loveland. There's even a waiting list that's about 15 years old and more than 100 names deep of folks who want to volunteer with the program. You know, many of these folks told McLuhan that they still wanted to do the program, even if this year it looked a little different. I think it speaks volumes that our volunteers still want to participate and be a part of this. They truly do just pour out everything they have. Um, in this community, being the sweetheart city, that we want to share love around the world. And, you know, what better way to do it? You know, the cachet actually reads, let's unite our hearts this Valentine's Day. Our sweetheart city will lead the way. So like many things we've had to redesign since the pandemic began, the chamber set up smaller groups of no more than 10 volunteers to a room. They've also added second shifts to make up for the lost manpower. And of course, masks and social distancing will also be required. These folks are so dedicated. What do you think it is that makes this program so popular for these volunteers? Well, like you mentioned, you and I have both seen the stamping in action. We've talked with these volunteers over the years. That room is like a big family get-together. 
people laughing and talking and being part of a tradition that has seen cards from all 50 states and 110 countries. But I think there's also something personal about it for each of them. You know, I asked volunteer Joyce Boston, who's been taking part in the remailing program since 1997, what it was for her, and, and here's what she told me. It's my therapy, yes. Yeah, it's, it's kept me going. My husband's been gone now 12 years, and, you know, if it hadn't been for that, I don't know what I'd do. Because <laughs> living alone, you, you really, you can let yourself get real depressed if you want to, and I just refuse to do that. In a typical year, Boston, who's 86, also volunteers at the local hospital, but she says the remailing program is special to her, maybe because of the holiday itself. Valentine's Day has always been very special to me. I still have the first Valentine my husband gave me in 1953, (laughs) and it's getting pretty beat up because it's been to four different states, and we moved 18 times in our married life, and so it's kind of got beat up, but it's my favorite thing, and he always made Valentine's Day special. He always bought me a fancy box of chocolates. And no matter, some years were very lean years for us, but he always managed to find that box of chocolates for me. I love that so much. But was she at all concerned about the risk of volunteering while we are still in the middle of a pandemic? Boston told me she never really hesitated about going forward with the program. She says she feels like the precautions will keep them safe. And she also recently got her first round of the COVID-19 vaccine. She'll get her second dose just in time for the 10-day stamping season, which begins February 1st. That's so great. Stacey, thanks so much. Thank you. That's KUNC's arts and culture reporter, Stacey Nick. Now, if you want to get your special Valentine stamp from the city of Loveland, you may want to hurry. Cards need to be received by February 7th for delivery in the U.S. and by February 1st for international delivery. You can find out more about how to do that by going to KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll get the latest on the return to in-person learning around the state. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our show is produced with help from Ray Solomon and Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.